invite you to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians this morning. We return this morning to our Hope to Hang in There series that we began in January and continued through May. We covered the first uh, three chapters pretty thoroughly. We uh, got into some other things, as you know, throughout the summer, and especially in August as we had our refocused launch. And so let's review as you uh, turn to this passage of Scripture. Acts 17 records Paul's trip to Thessalonica, a major port city of 200,000 plus people. They had a great ministry there until Paul and Silas faced a great danger and uh, opposition to their message, and they were ushered out of town under the cover of darkness for, for their own safety. It was, uh, and it was an abrupt departure. He was, and Paul was deeply concerned about this abrupt departure. And he's concerned about the condition of the church, the uh, spiritual condition of these new believers and this new church. Were they progressing? Was persecution getting to them? Were they hanging in there in the face of difficult circumstances and intense persecution simply because they chose to follow Jesus Christ as Savior? Did they fall away from the faith or were they, were they hanging in there making progress? Well, Paul sent Timothy to check this situation out. Timothy returned to Thessalonica. And when Timothy departed and caught up with Paul on one of his missionary journeys, he brought a glowing report. The church was doing incredibly well. They loved Paul. They were concerned about Paul's welfare themselves. They wanted him to come back to see them in person. They were standing firm, even in spite of some challenges and, and some temptations. Paul received news, though, that concerned him on four fronts, if you remember. First, Thessalonians were facing strong opposition and persecution. How were these new believers handling the stress of this intense persecution? Second, some of the Thessalonian believers had the doctrine of the second coming of Christ all mixed up and confused. So Paul had to address that from a doctrinal standpoint. Third, opponents were undermining Paul's integrity, his reputation. They were questioning his motives. They were slandering Paul. They were trying to discredit his ministry, his time with them, his message. And fourth, as strong as they were, there was always room for improvement. And Paul gave some instructions. He pointed out some things that would be helpful in their spiritual life. You know, no matter where we are, whether we are veteran believers, whether we have, are embracing our first love, Jesus Christ, on a daily basis, whether we are brand new in the faith, there's always room for improvement, isn't there? There's always room for progress, even on a church basis. No matter how healthy a church is, there's always, always need to, to strengthen up some areas of of concern or, or weakness. So there's always room for improvement. So where is your Christian life this morning? What, where in your walk do you need to improve? Ask God to bring to mind this morning a place or places, or maybe you already know, and you just haven't uh, yet put the energy and the intensity and the intentionality into that area to, to, to be stronger in that area of Christian life and Christian expectation. Well, let's reread the passage, or we'll read it in just a moment. We'll be picking back up. We read uh, chapter 3, verse 11, through, through uh, chapter 4, verse 3. Uh, Isabella did earlier for us, so have your Bible uh, right there at that place so you can refer. As we look at living to please God, what do we see this morning? Well, first of all, may God establish your hearts blameless in holiness. As Paul pins this letter, as we saw last May... He breaks out in spontaneous prayer. Did any of you break out in spontaneous prayer this morning? 
I was convicted as I was tapping out these words this morning because sometimes when I'm driving, I break out in spontaneous something, and it's not prayer. And I said, I need to be praying for that idiot or that crazy person. Or that, that anyway, you follow my drift. Instead of, instead of exclaiming or whatever. He, he is so full of love for the Thessalonians and so full of concern for their well-being, verse 10, that he, ex, he, he prays exceedingly night and day. Now, Paul later in this epistle talks about praying without ceasing. He gives an illustration of that right now. He's, he's praying for a reunion. He's praying that uh, what is lacking in their faith will be strengthened and, and shored up, that they will uh, be growing uh, to the point of perfection or completion or full spiritual maturity. He prays that the Lord would make them increase and abound in their love for each other and for everyone else, as you see in verse 12. This increase in love will result in their hearts being made stronger. My New King James Version translation reads, so that He, God, may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. Now, if our love is increasing, if our love is abounding, if our love is, is growing as God intends, especially our love for the Lord, especially our love for God Himself, then one of the implications, one of the results should be that our hearts are being made stronger in holiness. Abounding in love that comes only from God leads to be established in holiness, to being established in holiness. So look at this. The word establish or being made strong means to, to be made firm or solid, to, to set fast, to, to fix firmly, to, to make solid as granite. It could mean to build a foundation or to support or to strengthen or to encourage. Paul prayed that God would establish their hearts without blame in light of the coming of Christ, as you see at the end of uh, verse 13. Holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of His saints. God establishes us, He strengthens our heart, and He undergirds our faith and our relationship with Him. If we will lean on Him and depend upon Him and focus on Him and be so full of Him, He gives us the strength that we need to keep moving towards holiness and spiritual maturity. Well, the word blameless means without defect or blemish. It's a, it's a reference to the purity of life that God calls us to, that God wants to see in our lives when we're living a holy life. So, so here is what Paul is hoping for these new believers that are so dear to him. Paul prays that their hearts would be so firmly rooted, so firmly rooted in love that they could never be separated from their growth in holiness, that they will love the Lord so much that they want to be like Jesus in every part of their lives, that they want to be holy and pure in every part of their lives, that they want to live in such a way that they are always, every day, every moment, pleasing God and never letting God down. The things we do, the things, the way we act, the way we react. I mean, here, here's his point. There, be, there should be something uniquely different about Christ followers, shouldn't there? When the world looks at our lives, when they look at our reaction, when they hear our language, when they hear us share, when they see our priorities, just the way we carry ourselves, the confidence we have, whether we're living in faith or whether we're worried and anxious all the time. I mean, they're, they're, our priorities should be different. Our thought life should be different. 
We should be uniquely and distinctly Christ-centered and Christian. One of the worst things a non-believer could say about us is, so what's so different about your life? I don't see anything different. The words I hear sound the same as everybody else's. The, the tone of voice, the way you handle your anger, the way, the way, the way you talk, the way you carry yourself, the, that, that, that would be horrible. A horrible witness for them to say something like that. I mean, I don't see anything different about your life. You look just like everyone else. Holiness means we are separated from worldliness and set apart to a special relationship with God and to God's purposes. Paul prayed that God would establish your hearts in, in holiness. But holiness is something that we must desire and we must pursue. We have to cooperate with God, don't we? We have to be submissive to His will. We have to rely upon His strength and His power. We have to rest in Him. He is here to help us grow in holiness, but we have to cooperate with Him. When people look at your life, do they see Jesus? Do they see something distinctly different? Do they see something in your life that says, I want whatever that person has. Whatever it is that's different, I, I want that. And the that that they see is Jesus. That impacts every area of your life. Do they see that in your life? Do they see worldliness and worldly priorities? Or do they see Jesus? Holiness. The pursuit of holiness. The desire for holiness. Well, second, finally moving into chapter 4... Live to please God. Now, this is a transitional point in Paul's letter. The first three chapters of his book look backwards. They look back at his time with them. They, they, uh, they look back at his relationship with them. They, they look uh, back at, at some of the problems the Thessalonians had then that they're still having now. The next two chapters look ahead. And even though Paul mentions the second coming of Jesus in every chapter of this book, he still is very practical. He, he emphasizes uh, practical daily living for Jesus. We cannot get so caught up in the possible details of how and when Jesus is going to come back that we neglect the necessity of holy living every day we're still on this earth. So Paul begins with the word finally. And the word really, remains, um, uh, really means remaining. He's not saying in conclusion here. He's saying, furthermore, on top of what I've already shared, listen up. Here comes some more important stuff. He's saying, furthermore. And literally, it's as far as the rest. So Paul transitions here. And he makes two urgent appeals for the Thessalonian believers to walk with God and to please God in their lives. So let's look at what he says. Finally then, brethren, we urge you and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. The word translated urge means to make a request. His request calls for them to, to seriously strive to walk holy, walk worthy, walk without blame. Exhort is the word parakaleo, which literally means to call one alongside. 
So the primary usage is to urge someone to take action. This, this is uh, uh, Paul urging the Thessalonians to do something very, very important, to take action, to come alongside and encourage a person to, to uh, meet some difficult situation with confidence. So both verbs used together convey Paul's emphasis on the importance of, of maintaining Christian character that is pleasing to God. These two verbs enforce each other, and they add emphasis to his request. And both are present tense verbs, meaning continuous action. Continuous action, very important, day in and day out. Not just one time, but continuously. So we continuously urge, we continuously exhort. We urge you and exhort you Thessalonian believers, McDonough Road Baptist Church believers, to do what? To abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk. So the Thessalonian believers had already been given instructions previously. You go back to chapter 2, verse 12, Paul first mentions the, uh, the idea of walking, the picture of, of walking to relate to the Christian life. But he says in verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, you ought, you ought to walk and to please God. Now that word relates a, a mustness. Not only is he urgently encouraging and urgently appealing, but now there's this, this sense of, of, uh, of mustness. There, there's some force in this word. He's saying this is something really important that we must do. This walk. This is the second time, once again, that Paul used the word walk. That you would walk worthy of God. Chapter 2, verse 12. Who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul views the, the Christian life as a, as a walk. That's one of his pictures of the Christian life. Now, some, in some of his epistles, as you know, he uses the, the, uh, the idea of running the race. And he talks about running. That's another uh, picture, illustration of the Christian life. Let me ask you something this morning. How would you rate your walk with the Lord today? How's your walk going with Jesus? Your daily walk. In our March message on chapter 2, verse 12, we presented five implications of walking with God. What does it mean to walk with God? What does it mean in our lives every day as we, as we have this idea and this mindset? I'm going to walk with God today. I'm going to live a life that pleases God today. Well, let's review. First, walking with God implies an intentional aim. When we walk, I hope that you walk with purpose. I hope that you are, are walking towards a direction. I hope that you have a, a destination in mind. You're not just ambling about. We aren't just wandering aimlessly. We walk with God, and that implies an intentional aim. And that aim, according to Paul in this passage of Scripture, is in everything that we do, we please God. We're progressing in holiness. We're living in purity. Second, walking with God implies effort and progress. Walking takes effort. You can't get anywhere if you're just standing there. You have to take that first step, and then you have to take the next step, and then you have to take the next step, and you have to have motion and, and energy and muscles moving and, and, and all of that. If you don't take a step forward and then another step and then another step, you're not going to get anywhere. So walking implies effort and progress. Walking with God also 
requires endurance. Endurance. As we walk, we often encounter obstacles that sometimes trip us up, and objects in our path that that might make us stumble if we're not careful, if we're not focused on where we're going, if we're not keeping our eyes on, on, our, uh, on our aim and our destination. Sometimes the road is long. Sometimes the road is, is winding. And sometimes there are steep hills. Often, oftentimes there, there are detours or there are choices along the way that, that could take us off the main path in the main direction. So with God's help, we endure and we stay focused and we, we, keep our, our, we continue our walk. Any of you who are on Facebook may have seen the pictures of my time with Rebecca last Saturday at Fort Mountain State Park up near Chatsworth, Georgia. She wanted me to go on this hike with her in this state park, climbing uh, Fort Mountain. And so we, uh, we, we got there and uh, got started. And before we even started the eight-mile hike, we've hiked about a mile to warm up, to get up to the fire tower in one place on the mountain that you'll have to go see one of these days. And, uh, and to try to find the, the wall that uh, is part of the uh, historic site there. And so by the time we got to the entrance of the eight-mile hike, we had hiked about, a, about a, a mile or so. And so I was determined I was going to keep up with her and do this eight miles. And so we, we started. Well, I learned at least two things. You have to have the right kind of shoes. Now, the shoes I had, very soft, comfortable, no blisters, they, they fit pretty good. But I, I've had these shoes stored in my closet for some time. I bought them back in 2013 when we were meeting Rebecca in Europe when she was doing her time in Africa. And we, we, uh, at the end of her one-year mark, we, we met and had a vacation in Europe. And as we were walking out, in uh, wherever we were walking at the time there, I did great until I started going downhill. And when I went downhill, these steep declines... Somehow or another, gravity and so forth took over as I was going downhill and my foot got pushed to the front of the shoe, which there must have been some, some space there and they didn't fit as well as possible, and it tore my toes up. And so it was very painful. So I took these shoes to, to Brazil. I'd made four trips to Brazil. We didn't have to do any steep climbing in Brazil, thankfully. And then I took them up there, and uh, man, did I... <laughs> have a problem. About halfway through the hike, I was having all this pain every time I walked downhill. Uphill was fine, straight was fine, but downhill was a challenge trying to manage gravity over this tough terrain. I also learned that hiking is a lot different than jogging, especially on level ground. I mean, I'm in good shape, but climbing and stepping over rocks and roots uses different muscles. So I kept on walking, one step at a time, pressing onward and upward stubbornly and deliberately and intentionally, downward and over and through and across. And I had this intentional aim. I was determined to finish this trail. I was not going to wimp out on my daughter. But we got to the almost the end of the sixth mile, and uh, we came to a crossroads. If I turn right, to get back to the cabin. If I turned left, it was two more miles, and my feet had just had it. I had to bow out. I hated to give up. I hated it like crazy, but uh, anyway, I learned walking requires endurance. But not only that, fourth, walking with God results in communion. 
Now, Rebecca and I had a great time. We visited, we talked about things, we were uninterrupted, we had all that time out there. Uh, thankfully, uh, we, we enjoyed a beautiful day. We were communing with nature, spending time with each other. We were being in the woods. I, I, that's, that's a thrill. Thankfully, we didn't see any bears, we didn't see any snakes. Um, the outdoors were beautiful. The leaves hadn't turned yet, but it's still really pretty. Listen, walking with God means we don't walk alone. Walking with God means that God is part of our everyday life and as much as we'll let him, part of every part of our life. And he helps me with decisions. He helps me with direction. We enjoy fellowship we, as we begin the day together, as we go through the day together, as we walk together and talk together and enjoy each other's company. It's just a thrill each day to walk with God. Walking with God results in, in communion. But not only that, fifth, walking with God requires that we observe God's ways. Obedience is a major, major hallmark of the pursuit of holiness. When, when we take walking with God seriously, we live in obedience and we enjoy a spiritually blessed life. Moses told the people of God in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 16, I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, and to keep His commandments, His statutes, and His judgments that you may live. Now let me ask you this. When when, when, God looks at his, your, as, when God looks at your life today, does he see obedience? Or does he see disobedience? Does he see spiritual progress towards holiness? Or does he see worldliness? Does he see you moving forward in your Christian life or marching in place? Lots of busyness. Lots of motion, but not getting anywhere. Third, this is where Paul gets very specific. Please God with your sexual purity. Now look at verses 3 through 8. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, uncleanness but in holiness. Verse 8 says, Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has given us his Holy Spirit. Now Paul gets very candid in this passage. And parents, I promise you, you don't have to cover your kids' ears up. They need to hear this at your kitchen table, and they need to hear this from their church, because I promise you they're going to be hearing it from their school kids and from their friends. And if they watch any amount of primetime TV or otherwise, they're going to be seeing stuff that is not in line with what God lays out. And so let me just share this. Abstain from sexual immorality. I know how Paul introduces this statement in verse 3. He says, for this is the will of God. Your sanctification, your holiness, your purity. God intends for each of us to live pure and holy lives. That's his will. Our sanctification, our growth and holiness, our, our progressing. And then look at what he says. What he's saying there is God has a wonderful plan for your life. God has a wonderful plan for every part of your life. God has a wonderful plan for every area of your life. 
a perfect will that relates to your holiness. Another translation reads, it is God's will that you should be holy and that you should avoid sexual immorality. God cares for every detail of your life. Jimmy Draper wrote, uh, put, put it this way, the God of the vastness of space is also the God of minute detail. The God of the telescope is also the God of the microscope. The God who loves the whole world loves me individually. He has a purpose for my life, for all of creation. Let me back up. He has a purpose for all creation and nature, and he has a plan and purpose for my life. Now, apparently, because of Thessalonians and other areas in that part of the world were, were surrounded by pagan worship practices involving temple prostitutes, involving all sorts of, of crazy things in the name of, of religion, um, fornication was very, very available. Pagan prostitutes were used for religious purposes. Plus, Paul was, was hitting the basics of holy living in an unholy world as he instructed these believers. And he just put it bluntly. He said, avoid sexual immorality. And we need to be reminded that when we are saved, when we accept Christ, God not only purchases our mind and our soul, but he also purchases our bodies. Even our bodies belong to God. He created us. He designed us. He perfected us. He, he, he looked at his creation and he said, my, my creation is good. So every part of our, our living, we need to remember that, that what we do with our bodies, our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. In fact, that's what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy, temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify in your body and in your spirit. Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So what we eat what we take into our minds, what we, what we see, how we take care of ourselves physically, how we care for ourselves emotionally, how we handle our spiritual lives and grow our spiritual lives, all of that should be impacted by the fact that, that we are not our own. We were bought with a price, and we want to glorify God in our body. The word translated here in this passage of Scripture, sexual immorality in verse 3, is the Greek word porneos. And you can imagine what English word we get from that Greek word. It refers to, to all types of sexual sin, any sexual impurity or misuse of our body. This includes homosexuality. This includes any sexual activity prior to marriage. This includes uh, adultery once married. This even includes our thought life. And here's the reality. And this is so sad, but this is where we live. And this is the world that, that parents and grandparents have to be aware of as they, as they try to bring up godly kids in an ungodly world. In this day and time, if you choose to obey God and live a life of sexual purity, you will be considered an oddball. And in our culture, when you embrace, promote, and teach God's plan for marriage and God's plan for sex as presented and outlined in His Word, you will be accused of intolerance, hatred, or even worse. So what are four biblical truths about sex? Very generally put, for us to remind ourselves of this morning. Well, first of all, God created sex, so it is good. God created sex, so it is good. Sex was God's idea. It's part of His creation. God, God does not promote sexual freedom, but He promotes biblical sexuality. And here's the problem. 
The world has taken something that God designed to be good, something that God said was good, and stolen it and made it something sensual and lustful and, quite frankly, dangerous if it is experienced outside of God's plan and God's boundaries as presented in His Word. Second, God created sex to be experienced between a husband and a wife in the context of marriage. And I would say, let me just throw this in, preferably, hopefully, in a Christian marriage, where both partners are Christians growing in the Lord, where husband's a Christian, wife's a Christian. And get this straight. A male husband and a female wife. I just disqualified myself for running for public office. God created sex for two purposes. First, for union and communion. This, this act of love joins a husband and a wife together emotionally, spiritually, physically. And the second purpose, as we know from the creation story, is to be fruitful and to multiply, to create new life to bring into the world. And then, of course, we have all sorts of responsibility to, to bring our kids up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And that includes teaching them what, exactly what we're talking about in this passage. Third, sexual activity outside of marriage is sinful. Any sexual activity outside of marriage. David Dyke said, sex is like a powerful river. It's a beautiful thing when you keep it within, when it's kept within the boundaries of marriage. But when it goes beyond God's barriers, the result is always disaster. The writer of Proverbs touched on this in several passages. You can look this one up, Proverbs chapter 6, verses 24 through 29 talks about the danger of adultery and the fact that uh, your sins will find you out. There is no way to, uh, to, to commit this sin without it burning, without getting burned in your life. Fourth, sexual purity is essential to a walk that's pleasing to God. That's what Paul's saying here. Now again, get the context. These guys are brand new believers they're stepping out of this pagan culture. They maybe already have been visiting the temple and participating in, in activities that God would say is, is fornication, sex before marriage. They, uh, they're, they're having to shift all kinds of gears, learning what it means to be a Christian. They, they don't have the Bible yet to read. The, Paul, Paul's letter is, 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 you know, that ended up in our inspired New Testament is, is maybe the first instruction they've seen in writing. They knew Paul's teaching. They, they, uh, they, when Paul was with them, he had encouraged them. He had instructed them. He had tried to build them up and encourage them and so forth. But, uh, but they were facing all sorts of temptation. And so are we, because that comes from fall, a living in a fallen world. However, if we're serious about pursuing holiness, if we're about walking to please God, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, then with God's help, we need to avoid and to abstain from sexual immorality. Whatever that means, whether it starts with our eyes or whether it leads to our action or, or whatever that means, God wants us to remain sexually pure if we're not married, and He wants us to remain sexually pure within our marriage. Why? Once again, we are not our own. We were bought with a price. And we want to glorify God in all that are, of our actions and all of our thinking and all of, of our, uh, uh, our, our 
movements and decisions and, and priorities and everything else. We live in a corrupt, impure world. These days you can't turn on the television without seeing some kind of sexual impurity of all kinds thrown right in your face. We were watching the pilot of a new uh, series the other night. And before we got into the first 10 minutes, suddenly there was, there, there was this relationship that God would not be pleased with thrown right in our face. And we turned it off and, and quit recording that particular pilot. We're not going to watch it, that particular series. Listen, there's a better way. There's God's way. And it's laid out right here in God's Word, in, in Paul's instructions to the Thessalonians and to us. And he, he gives us this very, very practical, urgent exhortation. Abstain from sexual immorality so that you can pursue holiness and live a life that's pleasing to God. And then he adds a second instruction that we'll pick up on next week. Look at verse 9. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, but you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. We are to live to love. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commend you, that you may walk. Here's that word again. Here's that picture of walking. But he's, this time he says, walking properly toward those who are outside. Again, when the world sees our lives and looks at us, what do they see? Who do they see? What kind of testimony do we have? Those who are outside, that you may lack nothing. So again, Paul says very clearly, very candidly, very bluntly, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, your growth and progress in holiness, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. How are you doing in your pursuit of holiness? Are you, are you doing the basics? Are you doing the, the disciplines that, that lead to spiritual growth? Are there some things in your life that you need to confess and, and clean up and clear up with God between you and God this morning so that you can get back on track in your Christian walk and your pursuit of holiness? Does your life look like Jesus? Where do you need to improve? Where do you need to strengthen? Maybe you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You've never made that decision to accept Christ as Savior. He wants to be your Savior. And you can be saved today. If you'll open up your life to Him, confess that you're a sinner by nature and by choice, recognize that your sin separates you from God, recognize that God sent Jesus to die on the cross for your sin, Jesus paying the price for your sin, shedding His blood on Calvary so that you can find forgiveness. And then He was buried. He rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven. He's coming back one of these days. But he himself said, he is the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to heaven, the only way to have a right relationship with God. So you have to call on him yourself, individually, and invite Jesus Christ to be your Savior, to give you forgiveness, to give you a place in heaven. Have you made that decision? Life's most important decision. Let us help you with that this morning. I'm going to be hanging around. Some of our ministers are going to be hanging around. Others can, can help you with that decision. If you'll let us talk to you for a moment after the service. If you're watching online, reach out to us at this email address, dchancy at mcdonaldroad.org, and let us have the privilege 
of helping you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. Maybe you have decisions or uh, questions about what happens next, the next step of baptism after you're saved. Everybody in the New Testament who got uh, baptized was first saved, and they got baptized after their salvation experience. And maybe you have questions about how to join McDonough Road Baptist Church, what it means to come alongside us officially, to, to, to jump in here and, and be a part of the body, not just an attender, but now a participant, an official member of the body of Christ. Father, we give you thanks for your call to holiness and for your reminder, even in, with such a topic such as this this morning that, that may be awkward, that may be, be uh, embarrassing in some circles, but Lord, is so needed in our culture, and in our lives. Father, we pray for those who need to make decisions for you. We pray, Father, that, uh, that they would have the courage to not put off, not to procrastinate, not to make excuses, but to say yes to Jesus today and give us the chance to help them and to assist them and come alongside them. Lord, we thank you for decisions that have been made in recent weeks. We thank you for the baptisms last week. We just pray, Lord, that you'll move in our midst in these days and help us to, in our own lives, to examine our hearts and to draw closer to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.